We'll have one more session on the third of the four immeasurables, empathetic joy, the easily overlooked immeasurable. And what I'd like to do in this session is first of all focus outwards. And bear in mind in terms of empathetic joy, the classic practice, there we're tending to two aspects, the cause and the fruit. And so the fruit is, is joy, happiness, bliss. The cause, virtue, really sowing the seeds of happiness. And so we take delight in both of these. And so we'll do that. But in this regard too, I think there's something that could really be balanced out because there's, a, to my mind, a massive imbalance in the modern perspective. And that is, from, by way of the media, the press, the general public, I think there's a lot of appreciation, very widespread, of people who really go out and, and are active in the world altruistically, opening clinics, starting schools, helping feed the poor, a relief for those from uh, natural calamities and so forth. So there's a lot of recognition for that, and very rightly. It's a wonderful thing. It's virtue that is enacted in the world, and it's treating the symptoms of samsara. And it's really wonderful to treat the symptoms of samsara. Um, but as I mentioned sometime recently, in terms of the causes of suffering, we tend to focus on the symptoms and don't spend that much time looking at the causes unless they're clinically diagnosed. A neurosis or psychosis, they get, they get some attention. But otherwise, well, we're human, what do you expect, you know? And so likewise for virtue, it's, it's, we, we tend to focus on that which is outwards. And so virtue that is displayed in the world and has an impact of alleviating suffering, of bringing happiness, the Trappist monks, for example, who may, who may spend years and years in solitude cultivating compassion, cultivating deep wisdom, cultivating virtue, humility, generosity, and just living very silent lives. And they just kind of, well, you're just irrelevant. I've actually had somebody oh, a few years back saying, Alan, you've had enough time to meditate. You should just be active now. You know, like, you had your time. <laughs> you know, I'm not finished yet. I'm not finished yet. You know, but no, no you had enough time. And so... There is that cultivation of virtue, that manifestation of virtue as well. When people are really, as we are here, we're not doing a whole lot of good for the world. The world's doing a whole lot of good for us here. Right now, we're not doing a whole lot of good for the world. I hope maybe by the way the podcast's a little bit of good here and there. Hope so. But uh, right now, it's really a time of cultivation, of inner cultivation. And to rejoice in those individuals, a person like Milarepa, to not begrudge him the time that he spent in solitude. It was only because he had that time in solitude that he became Tibet's most beloved yogi and wrote his poems and these wonderful stories of his life. But if he had not spent the time in solitude looking pretty useless and eating you know, nettles, then the, the rest wouldn't have happened. And so attending to the, those aspects, I think those people in the, in the foreseeable future will never get a, a Nobel Peace Prize. The Nobel Peace Prize is always good if people are manifesting very publicly. But I'd love to see one of these days, a Taoist monk or a, a Christian nun who's a contemplative or a Buddhist, of course, who's devoting full-time practice just to cultivating compassion and wisdom and liberation, identifying the true causes of suffering and happiness and following the path. Because these are truly the peacemakers. And as His Holiness has said so many times, peace, you know, it's a primordial wisdom. Peace begins from inside. So there's that. So what I would like to do is that we have kind of an even balance here, which we find almost nowhere in the world, uh, and that is a rejoicing of an appreciation of virtue manifested in the world to alleviate suffering in so many different ways, but also taking delight in those who are 
going inwards and really drawing from their inner resources and following the path to liberation. And then, as for outside, seeking a symmetry, so for the inside, seeking a symmetry. I'm sure there's just no question that for all of us here, there are times we've been manifesting in the world and doing good in the world, offering our own goodness, making a difference. Clearly, there can't be a person here for whom that's not true. But, and taking delight in that, okay? But then also taking the delight in those times when we've been sublimely useless, at least for a little while, right? Spending time practicing shamatha, donglen, things that look like nothing's happening the outside, but the world is changing inside. So that'll be our session. I hope you, I hope you find some benefit. Let's do it. each session with a moment of empathetic joy for yourself, taking delight in this leisure and this opportunity to address the inner causes of suffering and attenuate them, to address the inner causes of genuine happiness and cultivate them. But for this little while, we have nothing to do but be authentic and effectively proceed along the path to our own awakening. So begin the moment with a moment of delight and settle your body in its natural state and your respiration in its natural rhythm. Set your mind at ease, releasing your cares about the past and the future, allowing yourself this freedom for the duration of this short session, just to be here, to be now, to be still and let your awareness clearly manifest the sensations of the in and out breath. 
relaxing deeply with every out-breath. This way we gently come to rest in the stillness of awareness. Analogous to resting in the substrate, analogous to resting in the primordial stillness of Rigpa itself. But the coarse mind also has its luminous displays, its creativity, its intelligence, memory, imagination. The substrate consciousness illuminates dreams. Primordial consciousness, pristine awareness, illuminates the whole of reality. Let's activate now this luminous dynamic aspect of our own minds, drawing on memory, imagination, but attending to that which is real. Let your attention rove and a light upon individuals or communities in the present and in the past who have brought great good to the world. In two ways, those who alleviate manifest suffering, those who help others find hedonic well-being, those who serve in the world by leading others along the path to awakening, alleviating the inner causes of suffering, and tapping into the inner resources to find genuine happiness. Attend to such individuals, such communities. Let your mind dwell upon them, and take delight, take satisfaction, On behalf of the world, you may thank them for what they've shared of their own goodness and manifested in the world. 
then turn your attention, if you will, to those individuals in the present and in the past who've turned their awareness inwards, who've devoted their lives to contemplation, to inner transformation, to freedom, to exploring the full potentials of what it is to be a human being, a sentient being, a being with a Buddha nature. Such that when eventually they emerge from solitude, they bring blessings to the world that transform the world. whether it's the Buddha himself and his six years of solitude, whether it's Jesus the Christ, his 40 days in solitude, so many others in the Zen tradition, the Taoist, the Sufi, the Jewish as well, and of course the Christian. These pre- people who, bra- who breathe fresh, a fresh breath into the traditions, bring a fresh light and hope for all of us who are striving on our own paths. Attend to them, let your mind dwell on them, and take delight. the Hindu tradition. Great beings like Ramakrishna, Ramana Maharshi, so many others who have transformed the land of India and so many other cultures influenced by this great contemplative civilization.
we may take delight in, as well <clears throat> in those who support others in the contemplative life. Investing in the spiritual future for themselves, their children. Seeing that the bright light of their spiritual tradition remains. your awareness inwards. <coughs> Direct your awareness inwards to your own life, drawing from your memory. And not in the spirit of self-inflation or self-congratulation, not in the spirit of self at all, but in the spirit of taking delight in virtue. Look back upon your own life on those occasions when you brought some good to the world in so many different ways, to those near, to those far away. Attend to these moments and phases of your life and take delight. This is what brings meaning to life.
can finally dwell on your own inner aspirations, the time, the effort you've devoted to this inner transformation, inner purification, spiritual maturation, to becoming better people. to these periods as well, for these two are what makes life meaningful. Attend to them and take delight. Then release all appearances and let your awareness come to rest in its own nature.
And let's bring the session to a close. <clears throat> We have a number of, again, very practical questions, which is good. We'll try to keep really close to practice. Just start, this is the most recent one, but uh, attend to it. I think it's Sepala for the message. And then a question, what I'm going to do here, unless anybody objects, is if, uh, I'll ask you from now on, if for any reason you would just like uh, your question to be anonymous, just say your name so I know who you are, and say anonymous. And there was one message that was very clearly a part that was private, and so of course that remains private. This is not at all private. And that is, what is the hindrance of uncertainty among the five hindrances? You remember, that's that fifth one. And it's not, of course, it's not just being uncertain. That's, that's very clear. I mean, the Buddha encouraged his followers, you know, test, be, be skeptical, critical, really test. That means you have to be uncertain. You can't just go in, go in with complete conviction. But now we're speaking of what in, in Tibetan is called tetsom nyomonchien, afflictive, literally afflictive doubt, uncertainty, skepticism, where it's really... Again, it's obscuring. That's the nature. Dipa means to obscure. It's obscuring the nature of your own awareness. Uh, it's a hindrance to be able to follow the path of shamatha and achieve jhana. So that's why it's called a hindrance and an obscuration. So what is the nature of this hindrance of uncertainty? What's, what is it about? Uh, this one that is countered by precise investigation. So, very nice pinpoint, totally uncertain question. Totally certain question about uncertainty. Um, what I'm sure it's not is questions like descriptions of the 18 hell realms. Is that to be taken literally or is that metaphorically? Hmm. It's not that. I can't imagine that's it. It's because some of these issues may remain uncertain for some time, but that doesn't mean they're debilitating. That It's not even afflictive. It's, not even, it's, a, it's a legitimate concern. Is it literal? How literal? And so forth and so on. I think what this type of uncertainty is, is much more related to practice related to practice, and that is as one is venturing into the practice, after all these are hindrances specifically you know, for achieving jhana, although they're there whether or not you practice jhana, practice uh, uh, doubts about oneself, um, whether, you know, where, what it is, it's, it, they, they often liken it to trying to thread a needle with a, with a thread that is frayed. And you go on one side, okay, let's practice shamati. Good idea, let's practice shamati. Uh, but I probably couldn't. I mean, hardly anybody achieves shamati these days. Why should I think I'm special? I'm probably wasting my time. I should recite Omane Peme Hum. At least that's virtuous, I think. <laughs> or is it? Maybe it's not virtuous. Is it really better to say Omane Peme Hum rather than Fi Fai Fo Fum, Ahum? Maybe Fifi Ho Fum would make you a giant. Mm. <laughs> you know, so, so it's kind of like it just doesn't give you a break. It doesn't give you a break. Even if you decide, okay, I finished with Shamata. It's, not, it's just not working out. My mind is just always a cascading waterfall. There's no hope. I'm going to go off and do something else. But maybe I shouldn't have given up so soon. It's just always frayed. 
It may be about, of course, it's not just about shamatha, it could be bodhicitta. Our main mental afflictions, anger. Can anger really be, can, can it really be dispelled? I mean, there are many people, specifically psychologists, evolutionary psychologists in particular, that will tell you, anger can't be dispelled. I know one, he's not, yeah, he's very keen on evolution, most of them are, but a very smart psychologist, uh, very knowledgeable, very bright, and he's, he's convinced you can't, you can't get rid of anger. That's just hardwired. And then he commented at one point, well, see, the Dalai Lama, even the Dalai Lama gets upset sometimes. Not hateful, but he says he gets upset, irritated. And then he said, if the Dalai Lama still gets irritated, that's, I close my case. Let the, journey go, let, let the jury go and make its decision, you know? But if the Dalai Lama can still get irritated, that means there's no hope for any of us, right? So, would the Dalai Lama agree with that? No. He never said, you know, take me as the, the, you know, the archetype of perfection. So that's what it is. It's just, can I really develop... I think I'm kidding myself. When I'm practicing loving-kindness, I think I'm just going through emotion here. It's just a ritual. It's just empty thoughts. This probably isn't going anywhere at all. I'm just not a very nice person. And I was made that way, and there's probably nothing I can do about it. You know, it just takes the fun out of everything. Just that vacillating doubt. And of course it may be about oneself, and then we can turn it to the teacher, to the Buddha, to the Dharma, and the whole thing. And it just, it spoils everything. We can't do anything single-mindedly. So I think that's what it's about. So there's one. Here's one that came in yesterday, I believe. From... Yes, so, from Daniela. Where's Daniela? There's Daniela, thank you. I'm having difficulty with watching the mental events dissolve back into the space of the mind and with discerning between not suppressing a thought and not fueling it. So good. In other words, you're fighting the good fight. This is exactly where the subtlety of the practice comes in. This happens especially with the things that I've learned by heart, that have a sequence or that are by nature chained. Sequence, the sequence of thoughts like songs, one, you know, and rhymes and so forth, where one thing leads to another. The uh, Tibetans call that uh, just conceptual elaboration, the continuum of conceptual elaboration, blah, 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 blah. So with, the, with, this, with these cases, they seem to never dissolve. You're still young. <laughs> never say never. <laughs> if, you've, if you've been listening to the same song, let it be, let it be, and it goes on for 60 years, it never stops. Then maybe you can say never. Until then, never say never. They're just persistent, that's all. And it's probably they're persistent because there's a bit of grasping. And the grasping is probably going to be of two types, two flavors of grasping. One is, I like it, you can continue. One is, I don't like it, please don't continue. And very often, boy, did I find this, especially the first time I did a shamatha retreat. Oh, I mean, a longer one, five months until my visa ran out. But the images, I was doing a practice with visualization, and the images that would come up, it was like my mind was a spoiled brat. Like a, a, little, a little kid that just says, whatever you want, I'm going to give you the opposite. <laughs> and I can, because I am not feeling happy. I'm really grumpy. <laughs> you know? And it would come up with these creepy little images, just like flipping me the bird. You know, like there's two people in there and one of them really doesn't like me at all. <laughs> you know? And I thought, how can this be? That was supposed to be my mind and he's making fun of me. How many minds are there in here? And so the mind has its own propensities, 
right? And it comes up with all kinds of stuff. And my very dislike for some of the images that would come up. It's just like a little kid really wants to irritate you and they find how to push your buttons. That's how we say it in English. What really irritates mom? Good, now I know. I will bear that in mind. <laughs> you know, I'll get back. I know exactly how to do it. I, I, can, I can just turn her off like a switch and make her really pissed off. And sometimes that's really fun. You know, well, the mind does that to us. So how do we not feed it? Just the old, and you can, since you're a woman, the old woman sitting on the bench watching other people's children play. You really, since they're being taken care of, you know, obviously you don't want them to be hurt. But you're just, just so not engaged. Just, hmm. But so light that then the song goes away. Yeah, the song, the rhythm, whatever it is. Because they're being perpetuated by grasping. That's samsara. Either they linger or remain in the space of the mind until a new event comes to take its place. Or, when I can see them fade away, just by the mere fact of realizing this, they come back to life. Well, I think you have a mind like a spoiled brat. <laughs> like me. And so, in which case, it's, it's relax. Relax about it. Be like the old woman, knocking children play. No big deal. So my question is, for, this, for these thoughts that have, a, in a way, a life of their own, exactly right, it's well put, how can I step back and watch them dissolve without suppressing them or watch them remain without feeling like I'm fueling them? Well, there it is. It's all comes back. So often it comes back to the same thing. Relax. Loosen up. Release the grasping. And it will end. Don't expect it overnight. You know, uh, Settling the mind did not happen in a day. Okay? This is a long one. Okay, yes. This is, this, okay, I can go to... Could you please explain a little bit more about what, what these nyam, mental phenomena, yeah, so nyam, these psychosomatic, psychological, and or somatic experience that are anomalous, transient, and catalyzed by authentic meditation. So what, these nyam, what, are, these, what are these nyam, where do they come from, and what is their function? Um, in evolutionary biology, just coming back to that briefly, I found, again, there's like a, like a metaphysical mandate, it seems, among many evolution, evolutionary biologists, psychologists, like, a, like a, an ideological mandate that whatever behavior we display, whatever mental events arise, anger, craving, greed, miserliness, and so forth, that they all must have performed a function because they are there and therefore they must have helped us in the process of natural, natural selection. Uh, I just don't believe that for a second. I don't believe that for a second. I don't, why, why, would, why do we have to believe that? Um, what's the function of TB? What was it good for? When people get TB, what, what's that good for? To have your lungs fill up with fluid and then cough yourself to death. What exactly was the benefit or the function of TB? Or tinnitus, isn't that a nice one? Some of you have tinnitus. What's the function of tinnitus? Well, it doesn't have a function. It's an immense, it's affliction. It's affliction of the body. So, nyam don't necessarily have to have a function. Um, but they certainly do have a cause. And anger has as a cause. Tinnitus has a cause. TB has a cause. And so the nyam, what's happening when these, when these nyam are arising, these anomalous experiences, and where some of you have found, I think through your own experience, where they are most manifest and in your face and sometimes almost unbearable, is when you're settling the mind in its natural state. Right? I mean, they're just, they're just coming up, they're just being unleashed, 
and there's nothing between you and them. There they are, you know, manifesting. And so it's not so much that they have a function per se. You know, a function would, be, would imply somebody did them on purpose, right? What's the function of that, of that, of that, what do you even call that? That shade around that light, what's the function? Well, it's really primarily beauty, and that's its function. But somebody designed it. But when something just happens, then I don't think we always need to ask, what's the function? It's more like, you know, there's a creator involved. So nyamdu arise, and they arise because one is settling one's whole prana system in its natural state. It's settling, it's sorting. Pranas start to move. If the practice is working well, the prana is within the body. They start to move, they start to blockages, start to unbreak. And these can manifest as myoclonic jerks, these little spasms of the legs, the arms, and so forth. You can have a wide variety of weird sensations in the body. And it's not so much that they have a function, it's simply these are the outer symptoms or the somatic symptoms of shiftings of the, of the prana system, or if you wanted to put this in third-person physiology, the nervous system. But I think first-person physiology actually makes a lot of sense here. And likewise, when doing any form of shamatha, but especially setting, settling the mind in its natural state, you are dredging the psyche. So you should simply expect that all kinds of really weird stuff will come up. Uh, because Freud talked about this, you know, a hundred years ago. This is, these are the contents of the subconscious. He was certainly a very bright guy and had a lot of insights. Limited in some respects, well, you know, who, who, among, who among us is not limited in some respects? But he certainly had a lot of insight into a lot of the repressed and suppressed impulses in the human mind that we'll put into the category of the subconscious and trying to understand them, to tease them out by free association, by reading dreams, trying to understand dreams. You know, he's on, the, he's on a good track here to understand what are these subconscious impulses that may be not conscious and nevertheless really influence our lives. Well, this settling the mind in this natural state is doing that big time. Not many people who go through analysis spend eight hours a day in free association, let alone not getting caught up in it. So this is a very powerful means, especially when one doing it many hours a day, four days, weeks, or months on end, to dredge the psyche, and just like the nervous system sorting itself out, the mind is unraveling, and blockages in the mind, where we get caught, we get snagged, we get caught in the grip of emotions, desires, memories, fantasies. This settling the mind is exactly to get ungripped, and in the process, imagine, you know, expect them to come out. So that's the nature of nyam. And if we get caught in their grip as they come up, then we see, simply relive the memory, the mental affliction, the rumination, in which case we're not making any, any headway at all. We're just reinforcing the old ruts. That's why to do this practice effectively, we really need to hone in on that sense of relaxation and attending to them without distraction, without grasping. And if at any point in that practice one finds one is simply caught up, just all the time, just caught up, caught up in the grip of memories, thoughts, and so forth, take a break. Because there's just no reason to sit there and look, think that you're meditating, whereas all, what, and all that you're really doing is reinforcing old ruts. So that's the short answer on yam. Very absolutely part and parcel of, oh, of, of shamatha. And I should mention too, uh, somebody just mentioned that meditation is sometimes being present, presented as easy, which is a um, very attractive notion. Meditation's easy. It's easy. Say that with a big happy smile. Uh, well, sometimes the meditation are easy. Omane bem hum is not too hard. Omane bem hum, omane bem hum. That's actually quite nice. Omane bem hum, omane bem hum, omane bem 
I like that. It's very easy. Good. I just invite you to recall the about two-page list of nyam that Jujum Lingba cited in the Vajra Essence. Anybody who looks at those and says, oh, shamatha is easy. Only if you have a general anesthetic. No way is this easy. This is, I think it was some famous actress, was it Betty Davis, who said, old age is not for sissies? <laughs> Settling the mind is not for sissies. Men's sissies, women's sissies. This is not gender specific. So settling the mind, is, it's a tough job. There are times when it's really tough. Of course, you'll get shafts of luminosity, bliss, and peacefulness, and all that kind of jazz. When you get to the end of the road, of course, it's very, very nice. But expect this will not be easy. But I'm mentioning this now because in the same text, where he has about two and a half pages of these pretty, mostly horrendous nyam coming up, really creepy things in the body and in the mind, then you jump ahead 250 pages or so when he goes into the actual practice of tekchur, the breakthrough. There's a, there are preliminary practices, the four thoughts that turn the mind, there's some warming up for it, and then he goes right into the practice of tekchur, and then he mentions, oh, these are some of the nyam, when you dredge samsara from its depths. When you're practicing shamatha, what are you dredging? You're going from the surface of your psyche down to the substrate. So you're dredging your own psyche. You hit the substrate and you're finished, right? When you're going for rikpa, rikpa is the ultimate ground of samsara and nirvana. You get to dredge samsara from its ground. That's a direct translation from Tibetan. You dredge samsara from the ground. That's what you're doing when you practice tekchur. And then he gives the list of the nyam coming up when you're practicing tekchur. You kind of look at this and you want to go, ar, 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 ar. <laughs> tail very closely tucked beneath your legs. You know? I don't want to go there. I'll, I'll wait a bit. Samsara is not that bad. I don't really want to dredge it to its depths, not just yet. Ice cream, anyone? You know? And then he goes on, in case you thought that wasn't tough enough, then he goes on later, give him another 20, 30 pages, and he goes into the Tutgel, the direct crossing over. And now you're fully manifesting this full potential of rikpa. He gives another whole list of nyam for that one. So, get used to it. <laughs> okay. Could you please give an overview of... No, I think not. Could you please give an overview of how to achieve the five dhyanas and a, and a reason why a practitioner would want to achieve them? In the Theravada tradition, the four or five dhyanas are different ways of classifying at one point. Um, these, these are practiced. In fact, I mentioned, I was, I remember I, this can be very short, but you remember when I mentioned the, um, our whole hypothetical yogi from Tibet coming and then going to MIT and all of that? So I was focusing on the Tibetan tradition. Well, there was a woman, she passed away not many, many years ago, named Deepa Ma. Deepa Ma from the Theravada tradition. She was Indian, but she was trained in Burma, and then there were political problems in Burma, and she went back to India. Here is a woman, she's one of those women who was gifted. Because she had two children, I think, two daughters, two daughters, I believe. She did not spend, as far as I know, she did not spend years and years and years in solitary retreat. I'm quite sure she did not. Pretty clear evidence she achieved all of the jhanas. One, two, three, four. She not only achieved shamatha, she went right beyond that. First, second, third, fourth jhana. She was one accomplished yogini. And about further realization, I just can't say. But on this point, as a scholar, 
I would say in terms of just the evidence, I'm not trying to be a reductionist here, I'm just saying what could I, as this very limited scholar, could I, what confidence do I have? It looked really clear she must have achieved the dhyanas, probably all four of them. She may have achieved much, much beyond that, but that's just beyond me. But the four dhyanas and there are a couple of good biography, biographies of her, Deepa Ma, D-I-P-A, D-I-P-A-M-A. Uh, but on a number of occasions, with witnesses, she displays some quite extraordinary cities. And, uh, yeah, and was not all that bashful about doing so. Uh, same kind of cities that I mentioned a yogi might do at MIT. And at one point, when she was well into her life, uh, somebody, and she wasn't displaying them much anymore, and somebody asked her, I don't have a an exact memory of this, but it really did catch my attention. Somebody asked her, since, she said, well, you're not, you're not just displaying your idis. Idis is the Pali term for cities, your paranormal abilities here. Are they still right on tap? Do you still have free access to them? And she said, and I paraphrase here, she said, and now they're a little bit, I've let them slide a little bit. You know, I, it, it takes some hard work to get them back. And the person said, oh, how long? How long would you have to work to get them back? I think she said, oh, a day. <laughs> it was something like that. It was kind of like, what? <laughs> you know? So she was one very remarkable person, and it came from jhana. So my point here is, in the Theravada tradition, you don't, raise, you don't even raise such issues of stage regeneration, stage of completion, texture, turtgel. These are not words that even mean anything. Even Buddha nature is not a term that crops up in the Pali canon, let alone Rikpa or all of these Dharmakaya and so forth and so on. So what's the, what's the meal? What's the meal of the Pali Canon, of the Buddhist teachings in the Pali Canon, and then as preserved and interpreted in the Theravada tradition? The meal is sublime foundation in ethics. It's really rich, it's detailed, it's really superb. And then this detailed, nuanced presentation of how to achieve shamatha by myriad methods, and then moving from there to the first jhana, specific, explicit teachings, quite experiential on how to move from the first to the second, third, fourth jhana. Not just academic, but really have the taste of experience there. That's my sense of it. And then right into the samapatis, the formless absorptions. And then, of course, the four satipatthana, displayed with greater clarity, I think, than just about anywhere else. And so these are the tremendous strengths of this Theravada tradition. And in that context, there could be a good reason for achieving these dhyanas, because you're really you're bringing the mind to greater and greater purity, such that your vipassana practice will just be all the more effective. When you achieve the fourth jhana, using the Pali term, you've achieved now what is called the perfection of mindfulness. Mindfulness is just pristine, radiantly pure, and the mind is settled in this magnificent equilibrium. So you don't even need to breathe. So in that context, then this would make good sense. For those who are not in an enormous hurry, for those who are in a big hurry, then According to the finest modern interpreter I've seen of this myself was a monk, Kimindatera. Kimindatera. And he wrote a beautiful book called The Way of Buddhist Meditation. It's short, it's superb scholarship. And I think he gives a very compelling case that the first jhana is necessary. The first jhana is necessary and sufficient. So that's for the Theravada. When we go to the, in, into the Mahayana tradition, then we have things like Bodhicitta, and we have you know, the Mahayana Vipassana, we have Buddha nature, and then you go into Vajrayana, we have so much more. So overall, especially by the time we have Indian Buddhism morphing over into Tibetan Buddhism, very little emphasis, as far as I can tell, from my very limited scholarship, very little emphasis on achieving the actual state of the first jhana, the second, third, fourth, because they're looking at this 
you know, compared, you have jhana over here, which is a really nice bowl of rice, and then laid out here is this banquet of stage of generation, stage of completion, tekchut, tutgyal, the six yogas, naropa, and so forth, and you say, I could be spending, in my short life, that could be snuffed out at any moment, I could devote my life to achieving the actual state of the first, the second, the third, the fourth jhana. I could be doing that, or I could go off and apply my samadhi to developing bodhicitta, realization of emptiness, state regeneration, completion, tekchutjutgyal, and boy, that takes about one second to decide. You know, so as far as I can tell, hardly anybody did it. And the benefits from the jhanas you get through Dzogchen anyway, and you get through the state of completion. So, no, I won't give, give detailed. If you want detail, go to the most authoritative source we have in terms of a, of a, a treatise, and that is the Visuddhimagga, Path of Purification by Buddhaghosa. I, th- I don't think it gets more definitive than that of anything we have translated into English. And, of course, go back to the Pali Canon. So, there we go for that. And the other one, I can answer it at, uh, privately. Just, just, just a personal question. Okay, here's one, um, and, and actually I'd like to, the, the roving mic is still here, isn't it, Daniel? Good, let's, let's throw this one open, because this person, it was Kathleen, uh, mentioned just how helpful it was that we have multiple speakers, that we heard, we heard Michelle, we heard Anna, we heard Adalina, uh, and, and I'm really all in favor of this. There sometimes it just may be a bit faster for me to just go ahead and answer a question, but I think this one, it could really be helpful to hear multiple voices. And the question here is quality over quantity. It's something I think you're all grappling with. And that is, and I've had this question come to me in multiple sessions now, in our meetings, um, how long shall I make the sessions? How many hours should I put in? I'm putting in three hours, I'm putting in six, I'm putting in nine, I'm putting in ten. Um, is that enough? Should I be doing more? Should I make the sessions shorter? So these kind of questions are really quantitative questions, but of course, whenever you're raising the quantitative issue, we, one principle is, more is not necessarily better. And that's true in so many ways. Well, that's certainly true from shamatha. Just putting in more hours doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do better. So, anybody have any thoughts on this from your own experience? Things that were helpful, insightful? Could be from our more senior yogis. Okay, we can start with Nick. Um, we'll start with Nick, and then just anybody that thinks you might have something helpful to off- offer there. The question is how to balance quality over quantity. Nick has spent 18 months in retreat after the three-month retreat, so you have a database there. Yes. I mean, I don't really have much to add beyond what you've already said, um, except that, I mean, first of all, the benchmark you know, has to be intrinsic and not extrinsic. I mean, there was a point in our long retreat where I was tracking the hours very carefully and, you know, how many hours this week and how many hours this day, and that's just counterproductive. Um, Alan gave us uh, some good counsel in the Shamada retreat, which is that, uh, you know, and this is often what, what self-employed entrepreneurs will use and artists will use for their benchmark, which is, um, do you feel burned out coming back to the cushion the next day? Or do you feel a sense of enthusiasm coming back to the cushion? And it should always be the latter. You know, if you're a writer and you're just, you don't want to sit down and, and face the keyboard, if you're a painter and you dread going into the studio, that's a problem. And in the same way, you know, if you're a meditator and you just look at the cushion and it feels like there are two magnets, you know, pushing each other apart, you know, between your 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 backside <laughs> and the cushion, then you know you're doing something wrong. Your um, butt as a, ne- a magnet. Yeah. I never actually used that metaphor before. I'll remember that one. Because I had plenty of moments where I felt like I was magnetically repelled from the cushion. And, uh, I can just imagine you rotating. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, my own personal experience was when, when I found that there were more hours in the day than, um, you know, than I was able to meditate, that the real difference over time came from the seamlessness between the hours in between the cushion and the time on the cushion, so that it was really not a question of a stopwatch. It's like, okay, I'm meditating and then I'm done and now I'm off the cushion and you know, I'm just out in regular life, but there became more of a balance between the walking having a meditative quality and the chopping the vegetables having a meditative quality and keeping that peripheral awareness on the object and using introspection to uh, release uh, discursive thoughts when they did come up. Um, that was much more important than the absolute you know, number of minutes and hours each day and each week. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's a helpful mm -hmm. response, but that's... Well, I think so, yeah. And just as a footnote to that, we're now, we now have, what is it, five, five weeks minus a day or so uh, before we are, will no longer be here. And the chances are, for most of us, we'll not be meditating formal shamatha meditation so many hours a day a week after we leave here as a week before we left here. And so in a way that can be felt like, well, that's kind of a letdown. It was going so well and I only have time to practice one, two, three hours, whereas before it was six, seven, eight hours. But if you've already gotten into the pattern of, again, I like the, I like the image of filling a bathtub with water, that just overall throughout the, the whole course of the day, the bathtub of your waking day, 16, 18, 16, 17 hours, that the overall quality of mindfulness, of attentiveness, of introspection is being elevated then there's no reason you can't maintain that. You may not be able to spend so many hours on the cushion, but when you're walking from here to the taxi, you're in the airport, you're in the airplane, you're meeting loved ones at the airport, and so forth, if overall you've already developed some real momentum, momentum for maintaining just a greater presence with a quality of ease, of inner stillness and vigilance, that's going to serve you well. Really helpful, even when you're not in retreat. Good. Anybody else? Go over to Malcolm. And Another seasoned meditator. I think it's a, um, it's a matter of balancing effort. And uh, I, I have a tendency to push myself too much. And I notice that when I push myself too much with this you know, effort, that it actually contracts. And it, it, it kind of um, it makes it dry. And it makes it like there's no joy. And I think that if you can find a balance that uh, gives you a light, kind of lightness, a lightness of heart, and you know, being kind to yourself, the, the kind of time you spend meditating sort of balances itself out anyway. And then life becomes a meditation. So it's not like, well, how many times, have I, how many hours have I sat? It's more like how many, how many moments have I been joyous and light and um, present? I think. That was something that Alan reminded me of today. You know, we were talking about being mindful, and, sure. and Alan said to me, you know, it's about being light. And I thought, oh, yes, of course, oh, forget that. Yes. So it's a matter of being lightness, I think. In leading retreats, especially when it's fairly strict, and you have just very little in the way of any kind of entertainment, anything to kind of be fun and interesting from the outside, so hedonic pleasures have pretty much gone flatlined. If in the midst of hardly any input of things that are just fun, entertaining, get your mind off and so forth, if in the midst of such simplicity you can maintain this quality of lightness, kind of a quality of good cheer that goes from day to day to day, 
of buoyancy is another nice word, buoyancy. And then I've noticed in some meditators here, but also in earlier retreats, even back going back to the one-year retreat 22 years ago, that some people throughout the whole course of the year maintain just an ongoing flow of a sense of gratitude. And I'm not referring to gratitude to me or to that person, to this person, or that, that might come up, but that's secondary. It was more just a sense of, oh, gosh, I'm so glad to have this opportunity. And then in the 22 years ago, it was Gyan Lamrimpa, this marvelous yogi, and as, as a spiritual friend, you could hardly ask for more. It was so, just so many sublime qualities. And just having that sense, oh, I feel so fortunate, so fortunate. Those people who maintained, whether in the three-month retreats, the one-year retreat, throughout, maintain that kind of lightness, a buoyancy, quality of good cheer, and a sense of gratitude or appreciation. None of them had any serious problems. And all of them came out of the retreat and did just fine. So that's a good, really good science. Good. Any, any, go ahead. Can I say I met Deepama? We did a retreat. I did a retreat with Deepama. I couldn't quite hear. I did a retreat with Deepama. Yes. In, oh, you did. Ah. In 1985. It was fantastic. She was about this big and yeah. she was just this, so... This big means about four and a half feet high. Yeah. And, <laughs> and she, she was just so cool. Yeah. She was just beautiful. So, yeah. so by all accounts, that. she made just, it. Just the thought of her makes me feel... Light. I mean, there we go. Mudita. Yes. Mudita. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, just by all accounts, I, I've read accounts of many people who met her, and that's just this gl literally glowing reports. All she just blessed by her presence, and so there. And, and bear in mind, you know, that's at the very least we can say of her, Jana. There was this when I first did my this first retreat with His Holiness under His Holiness' guidance, and I asked him, "Do you know anybody who's achieved Jana? Uh, uh, that is Shamata." And he said, oh yes, it's Geshe Nyema. Geshe Nyema from Ganden, Ganden, Shat, uh, Ganden Jiangsei Mata. I think Ganden. So the Ganden Monastic University, uh, the Jiangsei College. He said, oh yes, he achieved Shamata. And you know, there he was. He achieved Shamata and went on and developed, and I think achieved Vipassana as well. But it was said that once he'd achieved Shamata, that just spontaneously he wound up having these healing abilities. So people would come to him, living up, I think, in Sikkim at that time, People would just come to him and they sit in his presence and many of them, he wasn't a cure-all, I'm sure, uh, but many of them just found that they got healed by being near him, you know. So there is the blessings of this. Maybe Atisha was onto something when he said more merit in one day than in a hundred lifetimes. Maybe he actually knew what he was talking about. <laughs> Good. Any other fi final comment on that before we move on? Good. But I think helpful, yes? Yeah. Very good. Okay, here's a question from Teresa. And... And that, yeah, it's simply a question for clarification. Uh, not wanting to debate, although, if you want to debate. Digitachachin! <laughs> Ready to go. No, no debate, just trying to help to get, get a get greater clarity on a point. Here, while practicing shamad, we are trying to. And I, I'm not seeing what. Can you tell me what this word is? I just can't read it. I O W S. Focus! Oh, okay. Now I see it. <laughs> it was like veils of oscuration just lifted and, ah, focus. <laughs> okay. We're trying to focus on the substrate consciousness by different ways, techniques. Uh, by, the moment what we, by the moment what we attend to is reality, isn't it? Yeah, it's very true. And when we get it, then all appearances will vanish. That is, when your mind completely dissolves into the substrate consciousness, then all appearances vanish, we discover the stillness of awareness itself. 
Okay, yes, true, so true. So let's see where we go from here. When we practice texture, the breakthrough, we don't withdraw from appearances, very true, but we are not engaging with them with grasping, true. So if we don't, they will vanish also? Yes or no? Yes or no? On the one hand, no. There are many, many accounts of individuals realizing Rikpa with eyes wide open, the, this open presence, and their mind does not go in, into a black hole and dissolve into Dhammadhatu or into Dharmakaya, you know, then completely oblivious of all reality, of the rest of reality, of conventional reality. On the contrary, and there are many, many cases of this, that they are realizing Rikpa the whole sense of duality of subject and object completely and often instantly. Just, it, it's not kind of fading away. It just, it's like becoming lucid. It's gone. And there's this unitive experience on the one hand. So the whole bifurcation of subject and object it just isn't there anymore. There's a global, a global awareness. But if it's not simply an awareness of duality, of non-duality, realization of non-duality is not the same as realization of Rikpa. Just like realization of emptiness is not the same as realization of rikpa. And let's do it once again, musumre. If you've realized emptiness, you've not necessarily realized rikpa. If you've realized rikpa, you've necessarily realized emptiness. If you've realized non-duality, you've not necessarily realized rikpa. If you've realized rikpa, you have necessarily realized non-duality, right? If you've realized rikpa, well, as I just said, the whole sense of this Bifurcation, the splitting apart of subject and object, gone. But it's, beyond, it's more than that. It is realizing, and here's the taste, here's the one term, rochik, rochik. You're realizing the one taste of phenomena, of all phenomena being equally displays of rikpa. And if we put this into Buddhist cosmology, from the deepest hell realms, even from Vajra hell up to the Pure Lands, pretty big bandwidth and all of them equally, of one taste, displays of rikpa. Okay? So to train in that, I think I can't give too much detail here, but um, I, I'll leave it vague, but to train in that as a ritual practice, and a very meaningful ritual, many, many rituals are extremely meaningful if one brings a meaningful mind to them, um, but one is presented with something really disgusting, and one is presented with something that's very attractive, and the idea is there, can you attend to those as being the same? Taknyam is a ter another term, taknyam, taknyam, uh, taknyam, equal purity, equal purity. So, you may, while realizing Rikpa, realizing the one taste of all phenomena of samsara and nirvana, realizing the equal, the equal purity of all phenomena of samsara and nirvana, that means compassion and hatred, that there is something, it's no question that compassion is not the same as hatred. There's no delusion here, nothing stupid. But there is to say, if you penetrate the nature of, of, if you really penetrate the nature of hatred, what type of primordial wisdom? Mirror-like. It's a facet of primordial consciousness. Hatred itself is a deluded, reified, encrusted expression of primordial consciousness. And compassion, of course. You know? And so that equal purity, and as you attend to, with this one taste, this equal purity, and you're attending to all the appearances, you see them as being nothing other than effulgences. 
It's called Rikpetzel, effulgences, creative displays of Rikpa. Well, there's no withdrawal there at all, on the one hand. On the other hand, oh, Chunyazepa, Chunyazepa. There is a point in the highest phase of Dzogchen practice where all impure appearances, and that's all the appearances we see here, all impurances, impure, all impure appearances, all appearances you've had thus far, they all dissolve into dhammata, which is another word for dhammadatu. All appearances vanish. Right? And so, it bo both, both. There's not just one way, one way to realize rikpa. But the standard, standard the, the most common accounts we have of people realize Rikpa is this where there's a non-duality, not only a non-duality of subject and object, a non-duality of samsara and nirvana, a non-duality of you and Buddha. One of the favorite phrases that the Gyatrudamuchi commented a number of times that I really held in mind is that there's one primary difference between Buddhas and sentient beings. Buddhas know who they are, sentient beings don't. So, I think that will answer the following question. Uh, in both cases, we will find a crystal clear, still cozy experience. I'm not sure cozy is quite right for Rikpa. I don't know. Cozy for uh, substrate? Yeah. But, okay. So, a crystal clear, luminously clear, radiantly clear, a stillness. Yes, indeed. Jadelwa. Chadelwa is a quality of that awareness, freedom from activity, a primordial stillness, beyond coming and going, beyond the very notion that is Rikpa itself when you're resting, beyond the very notion of coming and going, beyond the very notion of any conceptual, conceptual elaborations at all, existence and non-existence and so forth. So it's utterly transcendent. So is the difference between the substrate consciousness and primordial consciousness just a conceptual issue? The, an the answer is absolutely, emphatically, without a shadow of a doubt, no. Definitely not. And one of the biggest confusions in the history of Buddhism, probably in all schools, is to conflate the two. Now, you can say, well, that's not true. Theravada doesn't have the notion of, of Rikpa. Theravada does have the notion of Nirvana. Theravada has the notion of Bhavanga. And when you slip into the Bhavanga, which I would state is the same as substrate consciousness, they call this what? The brightly shining mind. It's serene. It's spacious. It's still. It's non-conceptual. People who have not studied very well slip into that and say, oh, good, I'm finished. Nibbana, this is it. And the great commentators say, not so fast. This is still conditioned. This is not, this is not Nibbana. And we can conflate the two. Big mistake. Big, big mistake. And then people like Tenjin Rinpoche, tutor to the fifth Dalai Lama, and Dujum Lingba, emphatically, he really hammered this in, but many, many others, there, in, in multiple te texts, including by uh, the Sikdun uh, Zhe, the treasure of, of, of words and their reference by Gunkyen Lokchamba, Longchen Rapchamba, in many of these classic Dzogchen treatises, they make a very strong point of distinguishing this from that in terms of the big issues. And one of them, and Dujum Lingba does this in the Vajra Essence, just comes in with a scalpel. He's like a master surgeon and comes in with a scalpel and said, it is an enormous error to conflate substrate consciousness with Rikpa. 
and these are the qualities of the substrate consciousness, and these are qualities of Rikpa. And if you conflate the two, if you mistake Rikpa, uh, the substrate consciousness for Rikpa, you will wander endlessly in samsara. So that's, that's how big the stakes are, right? Because it's very easy. And apparently it's happened numerous times to really good yogis. So these are not just the stupid, stupid people, you know, once in a while, you know. You'd, these are, you know, real yogis. Serious. Maybe spent 10, 20, 30 years in retreat. And they still make this mistake. And Dujum Lingba says of the substrate, people call this by various names. They call it non-meditation. They call it Dharmakaya. They call it Rikpa. They call it, you know, all the highest names. And they're all wrong. They're all wrong. And grasping onto that, they just throw a brick wall right in front of themselves. Because if you think you've already arrived, Oh, good, then I don't need Vipassana. I, I, I must have done Vipassana by the by. I guess I must have just already gotten Vipassana because this is, this is Rikpa after all. And of course, I don't need to practice texture because I've already arrived. And so you're completely blocked. So that's how important this is. Maybe not in the early stages, but when you actually realize it, then this is why it's important now before we start. Just as it's important before realizing the substrate consciousness, achieving shamatha, before you get there, really develop your renunciation. Develop your bodhicitta. So you don't get there and say, oh, is this cozy? And stay. Because, boy, it, major seduction. Major seduction. Good. Alrighty. So, the floor is open. If you can imagine, we, we, we ended before 6 o'clock. So, it's Sebella, yes. And we get the microphone here, please. And then we'll go back to Norman afterwards. Uh, I have a couple of questions about um, the, your instructions on lucid dreaming. Aha. Um, All right. One of them, um, you suggested to wake up an hour earlier so that... Um, I think I misspoke, because you're the second person that said I, I said, that quoted me as taking one hour earlier, so I must have said it. It's in um, Attention Revolution. One hour earlier? Yep. Well, one then... hour earlier um, to your normal time for waking up, yeah. and um, then you stay awake for 30 minutes or an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, when you go back to sleep, it's meant to be 20 times easier. Yeah, all of that is right, but I, I clearly then, I miswrote. I didn't know that I'd say, stated that. I'm passing on here the transmission of Stephen LaBerge, and the point here is that the last two hours of a full night's sleep, so if you, if you sleep eight hours, obviously, you know, the final two hours of that, that this is the, the prime time, the best time for dreaming, when the dreams tend to be the clearest, the longest, have a rich narrative, a lot of coherence. So it's just the best time of dreaming. And moreover, the longest buffer zone, kind of period, almost like a bardo, separating you from the previous day's experiences. So it's not just cluttered with you know, little silly thoughts or dreams pertaining to the preceding day's experience. They may be more, they may be more meaningful. More meaningful. If you have a really a, a, a rich Dharma dream, it's probably going to be in that time. So those two hours prior to waking up normally, the best hours of dreaming, the clearest dreams and all of that. So therefore, I simply miswrote, because it's now being quoted, I just miswrote. One hour is not early enough. If I woke up one hour, if I wake up normally at four, and then I set for alarm for three, I'm not going to get back to sleep. I'm almost slept out. I won't get back to sleep. Uh, whereas I know if I wake up at two, I think, yeah, this morning it was at two. And I said, oh, good, I can get some more sleep in. So I meditated for a couple of hours and then went back to sleep for an hour. I got up at 5.30. Um, or 
awoke at 5.30 and then it, you know, went right back to meditation. Um, so no, the correct, what, I'm correcting myself now. The correct advice is wake up about three hours. So if you normally wake up at six, set the alarm for three o'clock. Stay awake at least for half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. The instructions, since I said I would actually speak about this, and I will, we have a few more minutes, uh, a little bit more instruction on lucid dreaming, and then we'll get to your question. But no, so first of all, I have to correct myself. That's just wrong. One hour is just too short. And then you're right in the middle of the prime dreaming time, so you blew it. <laughs> you know, so, sorry. Uh, three hours before, stay awake for half an hour, 45 minutes, and then go back to sleep. And go back to sleep then with a strong resolve. You should be sleepy by now. Because you just did, you know, you didn't get enough sleep at all. So it should be, unless you're a totally wired vata person, should be easy to get back to sleep. And do so then with a strong resolve that in a little while I'm going to be dreaming. And when I dream, when I find myself anywhere except for in my bedroom here in Phuket, then I will recognize this is a dream and I will become lucid. So you fall asleep with a strong resolve and with the confidence that the dream may start quite soon. Because you, really, you, you artificially broke the flow. So you may be dreaming you know, really shortly thereafter, which means the time from making that resolution until the time of the dream can be short. And you're in now into prime time of dreaming. So, you have, so from Stephen's research, he and I'm sure other people, 2,000% better chance, which is 20 times. So it's worth it. But I know that at least one person here has really gotten very enthusiastic about dream yoga. And this has really disrupted the sleep and not getting enough sleep and, and then the shamatha deteriorates and so forth. So I would really encourage you, let the primary emphasis be on shamatha. And insofar as your interest in and your practice of methods for lucid dreaming and dream yoga doesn't impair, take away from your shamatha, all is well, that's fine. But in this wonderful environment, which is so conducive for shamatha, and it's also short, it's now five weeks left, to let the dream yoga business, you know, on the hopes that you have a lucid dream here or there, a little flash in the pan, another flash in the pan, erode what you're doing for six, eight hours a day, that's not a good investment. So, but I think you had now a more specific question now that I've corrected the misinformation I sent out. Uh, well, that did answer one question, because okay. I was curious how I could do um, 60 minutes and staying awake and then have time to do, to go back to sleep. So you have answered one question. Good, but okay. the other question is, um, when you're staying awake, it is actually a meditation session, right? You, you would actually do like supo um, uh, Two things, yeah. Stephen, Stephen is, uh, I think he really, is clearly, he's a world, Stephen Leberge is a world expert on lucid dreaming. I mean, he's, he's written superb books on it and he's very experienced. I don't think he presents himself as a, you know, a very robust meditator. He makes no false claims and I don't have the impression that's a really high priority. He's really good at lucid dreaming and teaching it as well. And so, coming from that perspective, as a scientist, a psychologist, a teacher, a researcher in the field of lucid dreaming, what he suggests, and this is good to know, because he really is an expert, what he suggests is during those 30, 45 minutes, immerse your, immerse your mind in something pertaining to lucid dreams. So read one of his books. Read a Carlos Castaneda book, you know, Journey to Ixlan or something like that, that talks about lucid dreaming and all the cool things. Just read any book on dreaming. Read Jungian analysis on dreaming. Read anything on dreaming. But get your mind really occupied with dreaming. One way or another, read a book on dream yoga. That would be fine. But what he's suggesting there is engage your mind with dreams uh, for, that, for that interval and then put the book aside and then slip in. So you're already really geared up Oh, dreaming's where it's at, you know, let's go for dreaming and then have a dream and realize one, okay? So, alternatively, 
settling the mind in its natural state would be really good. Really, really good. Because you're cultivating that lucidity with respect to your mind in the waking state, and you just, you just shift it right over. While practicing settling the mind into the natural state, what are you doing? You're recognizing mental images and mental images, thoughts as thoughts, emotions as emotions, memories as memories. You're not being carried away by them. You're not slipping into the cognitive fusion. In other words, you're being lucid with respect to your own mind. And you'll fall asleep and do exactly the same thing. Now you're recognizing a dream as a dream. So that would be a really good preparation. Okay? Good. Let's spend a couple of minutes. But no, let's, you had your hand up, so let's go, let's go back here. Uh, my question was on uh, awareness of awareness, yes. and uh, I was just wondering, I've been practicing that a lot yes. lately, and um, I'm at the point now where I'm really investigating the inverting yes. part of mm -hmm. the awareness, and I start probing, you know, yes. asking the questions of, you know, what is the nature of this agent, the consciousness, exactly. and I keep getting back to the same point with all of the questions, you know, what is the shape, what is the color, you know, this and that, mm -hmm. and I can't find anything. <laughs> and I was just wondering what happens at that point. It's starting to get a little bit more stable mm -hmm. when I ask the question and I release. Yes. But um, is that the point of it, just to keep coming back to it? Or should I start looking for something else? Should I continue probing? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, am I doing this the right way? Or yeah. what do you think? Sure. As I mentioned, this um, particular method that we ventured into this morning, Phase two, out of the four phases that Padmasambhava taught in this book, Natural Liberation. I mentioned this morning that that's definitely encroaching into Vipassana territory, because it's coming in with a real question, right? The very next chapter in the book of this Natural Liberation, that is the preceding chapters, are all about preliminary practices. And then in terms of meditation per se, like formal meditation, the first thing is shamatha. The very next chapter is Vipassana. And then he goes on to other forms of insight practices. Uh, it's more in classic Vipassana, and this is especially in the Dzogchen and the Mahamudra traditions. That when it, when it's really doing this ontological probe, or Dundamichepa, it's really probing into the very nature, even the ultimate nature, what really, what really is the nature of the mind that is here, that seems to be looking out? What is the nature of this phenomenon? <coughs> and that's when one starts probing it, and this is classic Satipatthana as well, Jitta Satipatthana probing into what are, the, what are the causes for the emergence of the mind? What are the causes for the disillusion of the mind? Mental states and processes. Are they permanent? Are they impermanent? And so forth. Posing this richness of questions. That's just full-fledged Vipassana. Full-fledged Vipassana, right? In the shamatha section, the culminating phase of the shamatha section, shamatha without a sign, uh, in this natural liberation, he doesn't go full throttle. He doesn't start posing these questions. Does it have a shape? Does it have a color, a size? Does it have a center? Does it have a periphery? We're ask, asking a whole array of questions. This is like a first-degree first interrogation, right? And that's what happens in Vipassana. Okay, that's flat-out Vipassana practice. This isn't quite there. So as I said, this is encroaching into Vipassana territory without taking it over. So the simple question here was, what is the nature of that which is inverting and releasing? And then he says, if it's the mind, what is the very nature of the mind that is doing this? But there's no elaboration. And that's why I think we could still say, okay, you didn't elaborate, okay, then you're still shamatha. 
all right? What it's calling for is just a, it's posing the question, but then just peering in, but not peering in with more questions. Okay, does it have a shape, a size, location, ba 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 da ba da ba da ba da You're not continuing it. It's just, the question is, the question is kind of like the, um, again, a, a, a piece of artillery. It's the charge in the artillery. It, whatever, something hits something else, boom, and then out goes the, the shell. It's not going boom, 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 you know, it's just one, and it sent it out, you know, out the, whatever they call it, what do they call that long shoot? The barrel, out the barrel, yeah. But it was just one, boom, and then it's gone. The question is, is the charge in the artillery, and then it just sends your attention, shoots your attention right into it, but with no more questions. It's just a direct observation, and it's quiet. And now, once and again, we can call it, now that you've propelled it, we can call this jokom. We can call this just a placement of the attention there. Just. And it's simply attending. The question here is, don't follow through with more questions, right? You're attending there, and what are you attending to? As you attend, as you're inverting your awareness, and it really this deep probe, just observe, what do you perceive? Without further questions, just when you probe into, the, into your experience, it's in, it's, to use the term from William James, this is radically empirical. It's just sheer, raw experience. Do you have, when I'm attending to you, and I'm, clear, I'm looking into your eyes, and I'm speaking to you, do you have a sense that there's someone that's looking back? And, and if you are about, if I ask you a question, do you have a sense, oh, it's time for me to respond? I will, I will. Is there someone there from your own side who is directing your attention, who directs your speech and so forth? Do you have an experience, a sense of being someone in here that's directing and releasing, that decided to do it and did it? Direct your awareness in upon that experience of being the one who is releasing and inverting, releasing and inverting. And when you do that, just see what you see. That's it. Now, Padmasambhava, it's interesting what you said about stability. Padmasambhava said of this in his little concluding comments, he said, this can be very helpful for developing stability. And that's what it's for. But it's enriched stability, because as he said, you may actually realize Rigpa, but it, even if you don't, you're probing so deeply right into the very core experience of being. It's bound to yield insights. Okay? So keep it simple. And then if, you fo if we follow the classic sequence, then once you've achieved shamatha, as Padmasambhava suggested, settle your mind in its st natural state, do not move ahead. You have 90% of the text is still to come. He said, don't be antsy. Settle your mind in its natural state before you jump on to the next. Um, then once you've achieved shamatha, you've settled your mind in its natural state, then you venture. Now you, now you can imagine, now you can imagine the difference in context. You can try to imagine the difference of context. Now when you're meditating, you're slipping into the substrate consciousness. It's still, it's luminous, it's blissful, it's serene. And now, within that experience, is there a sense of there being a mind, my mind? Is there an observer in there? And then you take out the stiletto of your vipassana, and you do high-level surgery. Okay? And that's when you bring in multiple questions. Okay, that's really bona fide shamatha, vipassana, on the basis of shamatha.
Okay? So our time is up, but I'm going to promise, and this will be really short, so I'll speak really quickly. Uh, no, a little bit more on the dream yoga, the lucid dreaming. And that is one of the most helpful things. This is, come, again, coming from Stephen Leberge. And, and I'll touch lightly on more methods over the next days. Um, but anomalies, anomalies, not just the nyam, the psychosomatic nyam, but anomalies of any kind, where something catches your attention, where just the immediate response is, that's odd, that's odd, okay? And that happens during the daytime, you know? I won't try to give an example, but odd things happen. Uh, like, oh, that's not normal. In the daytime practice of lucid dreaming, this is straight from the modern scientific tradition, in the daytime practice, daytime experience, daytime lucid dreaming practice, whenever you encounter an anomaly, something that's, yeah, just that, out of the, out of your, out of the usual, odd, then pause. And the term here is exercise your critical reflective ability. Critical reflective. And you ask yourself a question. That's odd. Okay, good. That's an observation. Ask yourself, how odd? How odd? Just linger on that. How odd is that? And maybe it's not very odd at all. But how odd? And get an answer. How odd is it? And then if it seems like a bit too, a bit too odd, then do what Stephen calls a state check. He calls a reality check. I would call a state check. And that is ask yourself, that's really odd. That's really a bit too odd. I wonder if I'm dreaming. And ask the question seriously, not as a ritual, an empty little phrase, a liturgy, but could I be dreaming? And then do a state check. I blew this not too long ago. I was having a, a really clear dream, and an anomaly came up. And I did ask the question. This is where I goofed. I, I blew it. But I asked the question, oh, that's odd. How odd? And I looked around and I said, and I, I said, well, it didn't have the full commentary, but if this is a dream, it should it should be dreamlike. Dream should be dreamlike, right? I mean, dreamlike. A dream should be like a dream. And I looked around, and everything so was so totally realistic, radiant, clear, precise, concrete, totally realistic. Just with the detail and the vividness that I'm having right now, it lived up to it totally. And my conclusion was, oh good, I'm not dreaming. Because <laughs> dreams aren't this vivid, except that that was a very vivid dream. Whoops! So the mere fact that walls are solid, the mere fact that you can pinch yourself, there's one of the great tests that doesn't work at all. Oh, if I'm dreaming, I should be able to pinch myself and that'll, that'll show me. That'll show you, you have a, that you have a dream thigh and dream fingers and you get a dream pinch feeling. So that's not a test at all. So there are various tests, but as we're now approaching 604, uh, I'll give you the easiest one and very safe and just remind you, just jump straight up. Just jump straight up. And the chances are very high. If you're dreaming, you'll come down, although there's no guarantee. <laughs> and if you just keep on going, whee, then that should be answer your question. But most likely you'll go up and then, ah, say, I'm either on the moon or I'm dreaming. Chances are you're not on the moon. And so you do a reality check. If you come just thunking right down, chances are you're probably not dreaming.
But the idea here is make a habit of it. And this is this prospective memory. Now we are out of time. It's the prospective memory to anticipate the future. And should I see anything anomalous, I will recognize it. I will ask myself how odd. And if I think it's maybe a bit too odd, I will do a state check and I will jump. And I will watch how I land. Make a habit of that in the, in the waking state. Lo and behold, that habit will carry over into the dream state. And in almost any dream, you're going to encounter anomalies. And then anomaly, some anomaly will crop up in your dream. And you'll ask how odd. You'll do a reality check. And welcome to your lucid dream. Because that's what will happen. <laughs>